Welcome back for the final episode. I'm your producer, Jack Bryan. Last week, Mattis helped mercenary-turned-whistleblower Jack Terrell and cartel drug trafficker George Morales get out of prison. While Reagan has left the White House, and while his legacy has taken a hit, he is legally and politically intact. As a Kerry investigation pushed in on George H.W. Bush, he became the president. And soon after, he invaded Panama and removed its once American-backed dictator, Manuel Noriega. This intervention would prove to be America's last Cold War conflict in Central America. And while you'll be hearing from me throughout this episode, for now, I'd like to hand you off to my fellow producer and our host, John Cryer. Thanks, Jack, and welcome back to Lawyers, Guns, and Money. I'm your host, John Cryer. As the 1990s close in, the Kerry Committee continues to investigate cross-border crimes and corruption. Despite finding disturbing evidence of government impropriety, the Kerry Committee gets very little press attention. So the Kerry Committees were marginalized in terms of their public profile. They got little press attention because the hearings were literally at night. This is Jack Blum, the counsel for the Kerry Committee. It was a systematic effort to discredit us Every night after there was a public hearing, Justice Department people, administration people would get on the phone and call the press and say the witnesses were all liars, they were talking to us to get a better deal, uh, that we were on a political vendetta, uh, that none of it was to be believed, and please don't cover it. The consequence of that was the hearing and the report were given very modest play in the press. The cover-up was working. And Kerry was never given the due as to really what he had uncovered and what was the significance of what he was uncovering as he went along. This is Jonathan Weiner, the counsel to Senator Kerry, whom we've been hearing from. Yeah, report after report after report, hearing it over years, 1987, 1988, 1990, 91, 92, and that wound up including our investigation to BCCI the Bank of Crooks and Criminals International, it was sometimes called, it was the Bank of Credit and Commerce International, which showed that the same problems that we were having in Latin America existed in the Middle East and South Asia. So we stumbled into that from the Noriega investigation, which we stumbled into from the Contra investigation. When you find a dirty note, all kinds of other dirty things get attracted to it because we were looking at the oldest voting crap game in the Americas. Weiner told me about the oldest footing crap game analogy when I first met him in 2017, and I've never thought about international crime the same way. The footing crap game is the reason why you keep seeing the same characters popping up in multiple scandals. So, the oldest floating crap game in New York was an idea from an old American musical called Guys and Dolls. Floating crap game on a boat? A crap game that moves to a different spot every night so the police can't find it and break it up. Sounds like a very difficult thing to do. Now, you should know, since it's your job to rustle up the customers and tell them where it is. The idea of the old floating crap game in New York was, this is the place where the mobsters during Prohibition would go to drink and gamble. And it would move around, wouldn't stay in the same place, because they needed to stay out of the police. The world of international crime. Uh, the oldest floating crap game moved around. Sometimes it was Miami. Sometimes it was Tel Aviv or Nicosia, Cyprus or Vienna, Austria. Might be London, might be a dirty bank. 
And in the 80s, it became Central America during the period of the Central American Wars. So the only way any of this stuff gets exposed and corrected is for the truth to come out at well, however ugly it is. And then you hold people accountable according to neutral, impartial standards. There was never an adequate accounting in Iran-Contra. There was a partial accounting. And perhaps the most significant aspect of that partial accounting was the Kerry Report and two Inspector General reports, one from the CIA and the other from the Justice Department, both based on evidence collected by the Kerry Committee. These reports were released the same year the investigation ended, 1992. And in them, the United States government, for the first time, admitted that, yes, to help fund the Contras, it had indeed knowingly looked the other way as cocaine was trafficked into the country. When you look at what the CIA Inspector General's report that quietly comes out on a Friday afternoon, and I, it's like reading a storyline that I stumbled into in 1985, the storyline didn't change. It just took the CIA having to admit it five years later and then hiding it in a volume that was classified until, God bless John Kerry and his staff for forcing it to be declassified, that ultimately admitted all of the people were involved in drugs. All of the people were getting funded by the United States government and all of the people got away with it. And according to Jack Blum of the Kerry investigation, there are long-term consequences to these arrangements. It is a major piece of why the drug cartels were able to get the kind of power and position they did. The problem is that they then get empowered by the fact that they work with us. So now they have stature and influence, and we now have a new powerful criminal enterprise, and we can't always control what they do uh, once we stand down. We had managed to have what was a mom-and-pop industry, and by the time the war was over, we transformed into a major multinational business organization, vertically integrated with tremendous financial resources, very large, very well-equipped, very well-armed organizations that had the capacity to steal countries. And that effect includes its effect on America. There was a point where the wholesale price of cocaine on the street in Los Angeles reached $2,500 a kilo. $2,500 a kilo, according to all the experts, is below cost. We were talking about cocaine that was available in such quantity they could not find buyers. And that, that is a flood of cocaine. Throughout this period, thanks to the large supply and the drop in prices, the crack epidemic explodes in America, decimating communities, especially African-American communities. Now, the oppression and racism that helped create the drug war results in America imprisoning its citizens at a higher percentage than any other country in the world, with only the possible exception of North Korea. In the 1980s, all of us could count the number of people dead on the streets of America as a result of the drug problem. You couldn't find me a single person in America who had died as a result of an attack by a Sandinista inside our borders. There should have been some ability to notice that distinction and understand the importance of the drug problem and understand that that had to be addressed and at the very least that anything you did to uh, solve any other foreign policy problem not make the drug problem worse. 
So the grand scheme worked. America came away thinking these were narrow, small operations run by some dedicated patriots. And we never really saw the true underbelly of America's covert foreign policy. As the Kerry Committee started to wrap up in 1991, that floating crap game Weiner talked about left Central America and moved to Russia. During Bush's third year in office, the Soviet Union collapsed, taking with it communism in Europe. Instantly, the conflict that had defined the second half of the 20th century ended, or so we thought. Throughout the series, we've spent a lot of time talking about the dangers of an intelligence agency that can subvert oversight and accountability. And at this point, it's important to note that for all the concerning and critical things we can say about the CIA, the Soviet counterpart of the CIA, the KGB was significantly worse. For example, while the CIA sometimes worked with drug runners to achieve political goals, the KGB didn't just work with drug runners. The KGB actively controlled the Soviet drug trade and the Russian mafia. Similarly, while there are examples of rogue CIA operations and politicking in America, in the Soviet Union, the entire KGB was involved in a constant power struggle with the ruling Communist Party. This struggle started at the Soviet Union's inception in 1922 and lasted until its collapse in 1991. This is Russian historian Yuri Felshtinsky. By August of 91, everything was literally occupied by, by KGB. Uh, the Communist Party was very nervous about the existence of this very powerful force, the KGB, because communists were trying to control the, the Secret Service. And Secret Service was trying to get rid of this political control. Now, when Americans think about the Cold War ending, mostly they think we just won. Communism collapsed, either under its own weight or as a result of American pressure, and democracy triumphed. The traditional narrative is that when Gorbachev became the leader of the Soviet Union in 1985, he began to reform the communist system, allowing some free speech and the beginnings of a market economy. These changes caused instability. Then, in August of 1991, communist hardliners tried to foment a coup against Gorbachev in an attempt to return the country to strict communism. When the coup attempt is thwarted, though, communism is abolished in Russia, and soon the Soviet Union collapses, ending the Cold War, and while that's not an entirely inaccurate telling, the ways in which this traditional narrative is wrong are both relevant to our story and to the world we live in now. Collapse of the Soviet Union uh, probably started uh, with the attempt of hardliners uh, to declare an emergency and grab power. He is the tricky part. We thought in August of 91, that these were communist hardliners who are trying to reestablish the power of the Communist Party. Indeed, actually, the person who was in charge of this coup d'etat or this putsch was the new chairman of KGB. So this was an operation of KGB which was trying to take control, not necessarily returning it to the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. When at the end they failed, Communist Party was abolished, and from outside the impression was that this was a major democratic victory over the Communist Party. And it was. 
but at the same time, it was a major victory of KGB over the Communist Party, because this was the day when the Communist Party lost control over KGB. And on the day the coup attempt failed, two figures emerged as the prime democratic leaders in Russia, Boris Yeltsin and Anatoly Subchek. Both gave speeches that day celebrating the failure of the coup and the end of the communist era. Even so, as Yeltsin and Subchek spoke, there were signs of trouble ahead. Now, there are several major photographs which reflect the story of August 91. One, of course, is Boris Yeltsin, who is uh, appealing to the crowd. Uh, behind him, we see KGB already placed somebody near him. Now, the same day, Anatoly Sobchak gives his speech in St. Petersburg, and there is a person standing behind him, and that person is Vladimir Putin. And again, he was recruited by KGB when he was a young student. My point is this. The democratic revolution just started. This is the first day of the Russian democratic revolution. It's a major victory. But already in that day, number one, you have KGB concentrated around all major Democrats, and they have everything under there control. And indeed, if you think about KGB, which is now the FSB as the institution, this is the only organization which survived the collapse of the Soviet Union. Everything else disappeared. So if you want to see the consequences of how bad things can get when an intelligence agency has the ability to operate without constraint, all you have to do is look at Putin and Russia in the 21st century. And speaking of the fall of the Soviet Union, do you remember those extreme anti-communists we talked about earlier in the series? People who thought liberals and the American government didn't have the will to do the things necessary to combat communism and who increasingly saw American progressive society and liberals in government as an enemy in the fight against communism. Guys like militia leader Tom Posey, John Singlaub, and the other members of the extreme anti-communist John Birch Society, which preached of an impending communist world takeover. That's the crowd we're talking about. When the Soviet Union fell, instead of declaring victory, their paranoia of a communist world takeover morphed into a paranoia directed at the United States government. Instead of fighting against an international conspiracy of communists, now they would be fighting against what they believed was a new world order, a conspiracy conducted by a cabal of global elites secretly controlling the world. If this sounds like something from Alex Jones, it should be mentioned that Alex Jones has cited the John Birch Society as one of his early political influences. The militia movement continued to grow in strength, numbers, and extremism until 1995, when a Michigan militia member blew up a federal building in Oklahoma, killing 166 people in a terrorist attack that became known as the Oklahoma City bombing, the deadliest act of domestic terrorism in the United States before 9-11. After Oklahoma City, the militia started a steady decline, but after the Iraq War and the election of Barack Obama, it returned with a vengeance and with its white power identity fully intact. And again, in the election of Donald Trump, they found another willing collaborator in the White House. And on January 6th, 2021, they were again used, but this time not against a foreign power. This time, they are used in an attempt to overthrow the American government. So 
If we look at the insurrection on January 6th in a similar light, as a secret and illegal attempt to overthrow a government using both public and private channels, other similarities come into focus. For example, we spent a lot of time in the first episode talking about the role Miami Cubans played in this operation and operations like it. Well, Enrique Tario, the leader of the group The Proud Boys, who has been charged with seditious conspiracy for his actions on January 6th, is himself a Miami Cuban. In this series, we also focused on the militia organization's role in the Contra War, and Tario's group The Proud Boys is often described as a militia, and The Proud Boys are currently a major presence in the Miami-Dade County Republican Party. Several current or former Proud Boys have secured seats in the Miami-Dade Republican Executive Committee. Just as paramilitary groups were used as the front line in the Contra War, groups such as the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers were often at the front of the insurrection, leading the way in a coordinated fashion. But there's another connection, which is perhaps more telling. While CMA had a relationship with retired General John Singlaub, many of the paramilitary groups associated with January 6th have a special relationship with retired General Michael Flynn, Trump's first national security advisor, who gave an incendiary speech in D.C. to a crowd the night before the insurrection and who advised Donald Trump to declare martial law in the face of his election loss. If that connection seems thin, keep in mind, John Singlaub is often referred to as a personal mentor of Mike Flynn. The men were very close friends and associates. When Mike Flynn started a pact to raise funds to help overturn the 2020 election, John Singlaub joined the board of that organization. And yes, he was very old. He died in 2021 at the age of 101. But Flynn, of course, is still with us. We also focused on the interplay between the government and the private organizations supporting the Contras. Jonathan Weiner, whom we've heard throughout this series, sees this as an important overlap between the Contra War and January 6th. The insurrection January 6th, it's the same story. It's the same activity. If you think about the insurrection, well, there are actually hundreds of officials now, it looks like, who participate in one element or another of the planning that led to the insurrection, according to some of the materials that have been issued by the congressional investigators already. As many as 300 officials. And there's one official we'd like to focus on specifically. While Michael Flynn was retired at the time of the insurrection, in the months leading up to it, his brother Charles Flynn was promoted to the rank of general. And Charles Flynn was one of the small group of military officers who refused the request to send the National Guard to end the insurrection. We've also focused on the outside funding in the Contra operation. While there isn't evidence of cartel money funding January 6th, there was funding by conservative donors and assistance from foreign adversaries. In the lead up to January 6th, many of the online channels calling for an insurrection were heavily amplified by both Chinese and Russian state-backed accounts. Look at where we are now. We've had a coup attempt to take over a presidential election that certain elements of the United States government, i.e. the president, didn't like. So you raise private funds, you then go off the books, and then you conduct an operation that is wholly outside the framework of government and the law. How is that different than every single thing that happened right up to the insurrection? While many of those behind January 6th, including Donald Trump, have been criminally charged for the insurrection, 
One lesson of Iran-Contra is that charges don't necessarily translate into justice. While no high-ranking officials were charged with crimes for actions in the Contra War, many, including Oliver North, were charged with crimes such as making false statements to investigators and withholding evidence. But then, on Christmas Eve, 1992, just as President George H.W. Bush was about to leave office, on the advice of his attorney general, he pardoned every high-ranking official charged with crimes relating to the Iran-Contra scandal. And that attorney general was William Barr, the same William Barr who later served as Donald Trump's attorney general and who consistently shielded him from prosecution. Also one of the high-ranking officials Bush pardoned for making false statements relating to Iran-Contra was Elliot Abrams, who served in the Trump administration, ironically, as the United States Special Representative to Iran. Abrams also served on the board of an Israeli private intelligence firm called Psy Group, which came under investigation for its interactions with a very sketchy company called Cambridge Analytica, which handled digital targeting for the Trump campaign and employed Trump administration officials Steve Bannon and Michael Flynn. In fact, Singlaub and Abrams weren't the only actors in the Iran-Contra scandal tied to Flynn. Robert McFarland was Reagan's national security advisor before Poindexter. He stepped down around the time Mattis started investigating. In 2016, Robert McFarlane hired Mike Flynn to lobby on behalf of his company, IP3 International, to convince the United States government to transfer nuclear technology to Saudi Arabia so it could be used in a proposed joint U.S.-Russia project which many say would have violated the Atomic Energy Act. After Iran-Contra, retired General Richard Secord, who ran the Enterprise, went to work for an oil company with apparent CIA ties, kind of ridiculously named Mega Oil. It operated in post-Soviet Azerbaijan, and it really never actually seemed to drill any oil, so who knows what they were doing there. Rob Owen, Oliver North's courier, went to work for a company called Global Options Incorporated, which billed itself as a private CIA, Defense Department, Justice Department, and FBI all rolled into one. And Oliver North, well, he would eventually become a member of the powerful, radical right-wing group, the Council for National Policy, and then he became the president of the NRA. So, that really only leaves one lingering question. If, indeed, Iran-Contra was a successful cover-up, was it just the drugs they were covering up? Or was there something bigger lurking under the surface? Okay, so we're again getting into some murky territory here, so a little warning on that. But this is where we get to the October surprise theory. Remember back in Episode 5? We said Jimmy Carter's hostage crisis dogged his administration and was a major campaign issue. And while Carter did negotiate their release, they were only let go after the election and, in fact, at the exact moment Ronald Reagan was being sworn in. We also mentioned that early in Reagan's first term, before Reagan had a hostage crisis, there was an unexplained sale of missiles to Iran, a country at the time that Reagan was calling a terrorist regime. Well, there are many people who think that these two events might have been connected. This again is Jonathan Weiner. The October surprise were allegations that, depending on which account you believe, Bill Casey and others, perhaps uh, George Herbert Walter Bush, went and met with Iranian government officials in Paris while American hostages were being held by the government of Iran and agreed that the hostages wouldn't be released until after the elections were over, and that it would benefit both sides. That's the gist of the allegation. 
And frankly, I really didn't plan on including this in the series when I started. I'd always heard it referred to as conspiracy theory, and when I started looking into it, it was with the expectation that there wouldn't be much, if any, evidence to support it. But to my surprise, that just simply wasn't the case. There are several sources of information in support of that, which include records that were released by the Russians after the fall of the Soviet Union, but most importantly, uh, statements made to a number of people by uh, Abu Hassan Bani Sadr, the first president of Iran after the revolution. As evidence of this agreement, Bani Sadr has made documents available showing written orders for shipment of American parts and weapons to Iran through an Israeli-owned company. In a recent interview, he confirms that the Paris meeting took place and states that George Bush was specifically identified as being at the meeting. And Bani Sadr has told friends of mine who were journalists, that it happened. He said that for a number of years, and people I know investigated it, believed it to be true. Um, but it's not something I've investigated. And while I'm happily quick to point out there have been many people who have pushed the story who are not credible, what's interesting is the amount of people who are credible that have also investigated this and believed it. That includes Gary Sick, who is a member of Jimmy Carter's National Security Council, the same body Oliver North worked for. Sick was so convinced that he wrote a book titled The October Surprise, where he laid out a very compelling case for it. Even knowing that I still wasn't ready to include this information in the series. But then I discovered a CIA document from 1980 that was declassified in 2017, and which stated that the Iranians were, quote, determined to exploit the hostage issue to bring about President Carter's defeat in the November elections, end quote. And if that wasn't enough, in his final interview before dying of cancer in 2016, a senior CIA officer, who was one of the senior officials Bush pardoned for his role in Iran-Contra, a man named Dwayne Claridge, said that indeed the October surprise had happened. Claridge was asked about a book written by a Contra-connected CIA officer, which told the story of the October surprise, which purported to be a work of fiction. Claridge claimed that the book was a true story, and in fact, the release of the American hostages was delayed so Jimmy Carter would lose re-election. So when major players of both sides of a deal say it happened, and a contemporaneous document comes out that supports that claim, you at the very least have to give it some consideration. And you might be thinking that soliciting a foreign power to help you with an election is uniquely Trumpian. But if it's true that Reagan did this, if indeed he back-channeled with the Iranians for election help, he likely wouldn't have even been the first major candidate to do so in the modern era. Before the 1968 election, then-candidate Richard Nixon back-channeled with the South Vietnamese and convinced them to delay peace talks, denying the Democrats the victory of having ended the Vietnam War. This plot was discovered because the Johnson administration tapped the president of South Vietnam's phone, and because this is from a time when White House calls were taped, when President Johnson complained about that election interference to Illinois Senator Everett Dirksen, there's a record of that call. They're contacting 
a foreign power in the middle of a war. That's a mistake. And it's a damn bad mistake. Oh, now, if Nixon keeps the South Vietnamese away from the conference, yeah. well, that's going to be his responsibility. Up to this point, that's why they're not there. Uh, they ought to know that, uh, that we know what they're doing. I know who they're talking to, and I know what they're saying. I don't want to identify it. I think it would shock America if a principal candidate was playing with a, a source like this uh, on a matter this important. Yeah, that's right. And they oughtn't to be doing this. This is treason. I know. So what's the point? Well, at best, in the best possible interpretation, all it means is that when people work covertly and hidden from oversight, and these issues are never aired, it invites the worst possible assumptions, even from incredibly reasonable people. But perhaps more likely, and at worst, it means the threats to our democracy are graver and have been with us far longer than we'd like to think, and that fixing these problems is going to take more than one election. I don't think it means we shouldn't have a CIA or that we shouldn't run covert operations. It simply means that without actual oversight, without actual accountability, then we can have all the elections we want, but we won't be living in a healthy, functional democracy. And while there will always be lingering questions relating to the Contra funding and Iran deals, the Kerry investigation and the eventual report that came out in 1992 changed the way America approaches international crime. And that we needed to develop much stronger regulations to counter cross-border crime, including financial crime. There was no such system when we were doing our investigations. Our work helped lead to what became the international system. Weiner isn't exaggerating, and it wasn't just the committee's findings that had a massive impact on U.S. policy on international crime. So did Weiner himself. After he stopped working as counsel for Senator Kerry, Weiner became the Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for International Law Enforcement. In 1999, he received a Distinguished Honor Award from Secretary of State Madeleine Albright, which stated that Weiner had created the capacity of the department and the U.S. government to deal with international crime, and that the scope and significance of his achievements are virtually unprecedented for any single office. Jack Blum would continue an already successful career as a lawyer focusing on international tax evasion and become one of the country's premier advocates for victims of financial fraud. Jesus served his sentence, never got credit for anything. Rouse walks free, he is on parole, and then he decides he's going to go back to Colombia, I guess is a polite way to say it. Jumps parole and goes back to Colombia. And then I hear maybe nine months later, that he has died in a car accident, uh, a head-on crash. Question, could somebody have been spotting him and wiped him out on the road? Hard to say, he had enemies. Um, but he felt very comfortable going back to Columbia. And none of the people around him thought it was a hit. So it might have just been a head-on accident where he was drunk and died. The mercenary Jack Terrell would go on to testify in a civil case brought by the widow of Martin Luther King Jr., 
which alleged government involvement in King's murder. The jury in the case decided that King, in fact, had been the victim of a conspiracy involving both the Memphis police and federal agencies. Jack Terrell left the United States, went back, was implicated in some actions in the Philippines, um, was person non grata in the Philippines, came back to the United States where he died a couple of years ago, and Tito went back into the shadows. So we all made it out, one way or the other. And Mattis, well, Mattis's adventures would continue from here. He kept working as a lawyer and as an investigator. So I was fortunate enough to have people believe in me who did hire me to do further investigations of further scandals. And not much different than what I encountered with the Contras. Cover up and cover up on misbegotten government ventures in other worlds. In the 1990s, he worked with John Kerry's office again, this time relating to the accusation that some American soldiers had been left behind in Vietnamese POW camps. Turns out there weren't any, but what they did find is actually quite a crazy story. So maybe we'll get to that next time. Mattis would go on to have a successful career as an investigative reporter, winning five Emmys and an Edward R. Murrow Award. When I first met John Mattis, it was spring of 2017, and I was interviewing him for a documentary called Active Measures about Russia's interference in the 2016 election. I was interviewing him because, again in this scandal, Mattis popped up. Mattis, who now lives in San Diego, was a volunteer for the Bernie Sanders campaign who noticed a massive amount of Russian disinformation appearing on pro-Bernie Sanders Facebook pages once Bernie Sanders was out of the race. So when Senator Sanders said this, Turns out that uh, one of our social media guys in, in San Diego uh, actually went to the Clinton campaign in September right. and said something weird is going on. He was talking about Mattis. And again, Mattis connected with Jonathan Weiner, and Weiner himself was an important part of exposing that scandal as well. In fact, by the time I met Mattis, I had already interviewed Weiner for that same documentary without knowing the two men had ever met. And so that floating crap game that Weiner was talking about doesn't just attract the same players. Sometimes it also attracts the same investigators. And Mattis is still at it to this day. Well, the beauty of what I learned is you can be a nobody and do something. You can be totally without any title, without any power. But if you take the time and you put the energy in, you're gonna be able to do something about it. And I'm a firm believer in the squeaky wheel. I don't care whether you're a citizen sitting at home, seeing something that doesn't fit, call it out. That's the easiest thing in the world to do, is to speak up, stand up, and call it out. And that's what I tried to do. And if you don't do it, you're back sitting with everybody else watching it pass by in history. Well, I guess that just about wraps it up. This has been Jack Bryan. And I'm John Cryer. This has been Lawyers, Guns, and Money. Hope you've enjoyed the ride. If you want to listen to bonus episodes where we do deeper dives into the story, go to lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. Subscribe now. Lawyers, Guns, and Money is a Discount Sushi and Bunker Crew Media production in association with MSW Media.
It was produced by John Cryer and Jack Bryan. It was written and edited by Jack Bryan. Special thanks to Ian Masters for allowing us to use his interview with Jack Blum. Special thanks to Marley Clements, Grandy Simone, and Hampton Stevens for their help on this series. Also, special thanks to Monique Kamara and Olga Lautman for allowing us to use their interview with Yuri Felshtinsky from their show, Kremlin File. Copyright 2023.